You're listening to Education Experts with EDX Education. Education is evolving. Join Heather Welch from EDX Education chatting with teachers, psychologists, parents, authors, creatives and other talented experts to keep up with the trends and what's happening from around the globe. This podcast series from EDX Education discusses home learning, school readiness, being creatives, changing in education, discussing what's next, hands-on learning, or as we like to say, learning through play. Welcome everyone, I'm Heather Welch from EDX Education, and today I'll be in conversation with Teresa Pankovitz co-director of Reinventing America's Schools. Tress is formerly a lawyer in domestic and international education policy, management and operations, a national thought leader and passionate advocate for autonomous school models. Today we're chatting with Tressa about the benefits of a 21st century education model, trends in education, policy changes, what needs to change and how we're going about it. Welcome Tressa, thank you for joining us today. Heather, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great. And I like you're in the morning, I'm in the afternoon over here. So, but can I ask you to introduce your passion for education and the adventures you've gone on to get you here? Sure. Thank you so much. So I was a television journalist. And while I was in Chicago, which is one of our largest school systems in the country, I did a lot of reporting on education and barely a day went by that I wasn't in some school or another reporting on some issue. And it just really spoke to me. Uh, So from there, I went to law school and on to work as a project manager with one of the foremost uh, elementary and secondary education leaders in the country. He had been asked to do some international consulting, specifically in the wake of disaster. He headed up the education recovery effort in Haiti. After the earthquake of 2010, we went on to do some work in Santiago de Chile after the earthquake there, destroyed uh, schools and the resulting tsunami in the south part of that country. And we also did quite a bit of domestic education consulting, mainly turnaround work in helping American school districts that were struggling with failing or low performing schools try to come up with solutions to improve outcomes for students which I imagine would be quite a challenging project to be on, to be honest, because it is, it's a hard thing to turn around schools, especially where they're underfunded and they need to prove that they need the funding as well. But listen, Tressa, we've been hearing about these innovative charter schools and, you know, I'd love to, you know, can you tell me what the difference between them and a regular like government education school is? Yes, and as a threshold issue, you mentioned off the top that we advocate for 21st century school models. I'm the co-director of Reinventing America's Schools, which is a project at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., and we do a lot of research and writing on autonomous school models, and we believe that it's sort of a three-legged stool, if you would. You have autonomy on one side, you must have accountability on the other, And then you must have the ability to create a diversity of school models. And by that, I mean, I mean, let's face it, children learn differently. They come to school in different places, different levels of maturity, different interests. So some kids might be really well suited for a STEM school. Other children might learn better in an arts integrated school. Other kids might do better in a Montessori type model. 
Maybe your child is well-suited for a dual language immersion model. So we really need to have a proliferation of different types of schools so that kids can get personalized learning that matches their interests and abilities. So accountability, autonomy, and a diversity of design. That's what we mean by 21st century school models. And we feel that charter schools are the most effective way to do that, at least in the United States, given our system. And if you'd like me to go into that a little bit more, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Please explain it because you've got listeners and they're going to be from the USA. If they're going to be from Australia, they're going to be from the UK. So it'd actually be really good if you could explain how the system works. So in the United States, the federal government does the bulk of education funding, and that funding flows down to our 50 states. And then the states take that money, and with some restrictions, because some funding is earmarked for low-income children, some funding is earmarked for special education children, but the states then divide it up, and it's pretty evenly divided. You just take the amount of money, and you divide it by the number of children, and there you have your per-pupil funding. That money goes out to the various school districts. In some states, they're organized by county, like in California. In other states, they're organized by city or town. In other states, maybe states with large rural agricultural areas, the district might be geographically vast, but still not have that many students. So it's up to the states. The states set the standard. Those are state assessments. So it says that By third grade, children should be reading at this level and doing this difficulty of math. By 10th grade, it would be obviously a different standard. And then the district set their local individual education policies. So you might have a vast district like a Los Angeles or Chicago or New York City or a Miami, and it might have, say, 40, 50, 60 elementary schools and 20, 30 secondary high schools. The districts standardize the curriculum. So it basically says by Christmas break, every third grader should be on page 78 of the literacy guide or page 59 of the math textbook. And that cuts across the entire district. And we think that doesn't work so well. It doesn't give teachers the control over their classroom to say, hey, my kids aren't quite ready to move on from this lesson to the next lesson. I want to reteach this or I have a more innovative way of conveying this material than just sticking to this textbook because my children are learning differently in this classroom and they need more hands-on instruction or they learn better through pictures than words or I'm not a teacher, so I wouldn't pretend to understand pedagogy, (laughs) but um, we know that teachers chafe at being restricted from the creativity and innovation to respond in real time to what they're seeing right in front of them in their classrooms. So charter schools, on the other hand, are not dictated to by that district. They're still bound by all state and federal regulations when it comes to workplace safety and anti-discrimination and and all of the obvious, but they are freed from the bureaucracy of a remote central office dictating to the classroom of what the teacher has to do on a daily basis. They are free. They are publicly funded. They are generally open enrollment and they must not discriminate. They must take every child that applies. If they have more children than they have seats, they do a lottery and it's a random lottery, which is not the greatest way. We wish there were enough seats for all kids, but it's still probably the most fair. 
And then they teach according to the model that they have set for themselves. It could be STEM. It could be, you know, I went through some of the different models. They may feel that their kids need more time in the classroom. So they're not bound by the district calendar. They can go into the summer months or they can go later, longer day. And they control their staffing in the district schools. Frequently, the central office controls which teachers are hired, which teachers are retained. And the charter schools have a much more flexibility to um, improve quality in their individual schools. Tristan, they sound amazing, the charter schools. I mean, I was saying to you before, when I first read about them, I was thinking, I was looking at it and I was saying, oh, these sound like grammar schools, which, you know, in the UK, they they weren't completely abolished. They came in the 1950s. There were thousands of them. They sort of abolished them in the 1980s, actually. There's about 163 left or something. There's not that many left. And they were actually abolished because it wasn't an equal. It was just the cream of the crop. So what it was is just taking the best pupils to one school. It was extremely selective. It was very hard to get into. But it sounds like the charter schools is actually completely different. It's about providing the equality in education. And that's one of the main goals. But where were the first charter schools implemented? Where were they? Which districts you know, took this on board and sort of have really run with it? So it's interesting. Actually, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary mm. of the first charter school law in the country, and it was actually a bipartisan effort, and it was passed in Minnesota. Ah. So the first charter schools were in Minnesota. We have charter schools now in 48 states. The most wow. recent state, yep, the most recent state to pass a charter school law was West Virginia. And they passed a charter school law, I believe it was just two or three years ago, but they still don't have any charter schools because the teachers unions are fighting very hard against them. And I probably should mention that most charter schools are not unionized, whereas virtually all school districts, except in some of the southern states that don't have teachers unions, but most the vast majority of district schools are unionized and the districts are really bound by union rules. So charter schools have a lot of flexibility from those restrictions. But I'd like to refer to something that you said just as you were asking me this question. You said charter schools sound really amazing. And not all of them are amazing. Some of them flounder just like the traditional district schools do. But here's the thing. When a charter school gets a charter to operate, it is term limited. So you might get a charter for three years or four years or five years, depending on what the rules are in that particular state. And the beauty of it is, is if the charter school does not perform, does not perform academically, or perhaps does not perform financially, or does not conform to the terms of the agreement, because really charter is just a fancy word for contract, um, it will not get its charter renewed and it will be forced to hand over that school back over to the authorizer. So whether it's the State Department of Education or a district or a university, it loses the right to operate that school. And so I mentioned the three-legged stool of autonomy, accountability, and diversity of design. Well, the accountability is, is that if you don't perform, you don't get to keep going year after year after year after year, like the traditional schools do. 
But these schools, a lot of these schools, as you're mentioning before, are specialised. And, you know, there were some recent facts saying that globally 800 million children will not have the skills to be within the global workforce because we're not looking at creative, social, emotional and all these other physical skills, all these skills that, you know, say, for example, our own systems are quite dry at times. I know that especially in the UK that... The, I mean, this sounds like the charter schools have the flexibility in order to add these programs to be STEM, to be creative. There's a huge skills gap that will happen, you know, say for my own children, they'll be within this if it's 2030. That's exactly right. And charter schools really do try to meet that need. I'll tell you about one in particular. So Indiana, which is a state in the heart of the country, has a university called Purdue University. And Purdue is probably the most prestigious, important university in Indiana. And it noticed that, and it sits close to Indianapolis, which is a large city in Indiana. It noticed that out of the Indianapolis public schools over a period of five or six years, while the district had graduated thousands of African-American students, only about 30 of them had ever qualified to attend university at Purdue. And Mm -hmm. Purdue University is the university that feeds that state's chemical and pharmaceutical and the highly technical industries that drive the economy in Indianapolis. So Purdue entered into a partnership with a charter operator to create a high school, a secondary school that was solely focused on preparing students to enter the university and become qualified for those high paying jobs. And it really recruited minority low-income students who were being shut out of those workforce opportunities. And it also had the dual purpose of feeding the workforce needs for the economies that were driving the prosperity of Indianapolis. And it's an amazing high school and they're doing amazing things. And they're graduating their first class, I believe this year. And like 85% of the kids are qualified to go to Purdue University and they're getting scholarships to do that. Lovely to hear that they're bringing out the diversity and, you know, bringing out the diversity that they didn't have. And they probably didn't even realise that they didn't have it, which is probably the worst part. You know, that it's kind of blindsided that they haven't been giving these opportunities to everyone, to a diverse nature of people, rather than having, you know, there's only one skill set. Well, you know, you've probably heard, if you've heard President Biden speak at all, you probably have heard that a child's education should not be controlled by their zip code. And the way we fund education in this country is the money flows from Washington, D.C., from the feds, and it goes to the state. But then it's augmented by local property taxes. So if you have a house or a condo, in some places, even your automobile, you're going to pay your local county or your local city property tax every year. And that funds the roads and the water and the sewer and the garbage pickup. But it also augments the money that comes down from the federal government. So if you have an area where there's a lot of affluent wealthy homes, big estates, and perhaps really vigorous business community, there's going to be a lot more property taxes to spread around to the local schools. If you have an area that is poor, maybe an inner city with blight 
or an area that just doesn't have a vigorous, robust business community to tax, the schools are going to be much less funded. So when President Biden talks about education being dependent on a zip code, which is our postal code, that's what he's talking about. So charter schools, because they're open, if you have a parent that has the wherewithal to say, I want more or better for my child, they can apply to a charter school in a neighboring community. And hopefully if there's not a waiting list, their child is admitted or they get on the waiting list. And, you know, it really can change the whole trajectory of a child's life. And because there's competition for students, if the school's not doing well, the parents aren't going to want to send their kids there. So it really forces them to perform. So do charter schools look at opening up in more lower socioeconomic areas in order because there is low resources within those areas? Absolutely. We find them mostly in the large urban centers of this country. You know, it's a common trajectory, right? You get out of university, you go to the city, you get your job, you meet your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you get married. Now it's time to have children. What do you do? You move to the suburbs. (laughs) Yeah. And you move to the suburbs because the schools are better. The streets are safer. There's less crime. Um, It's you know, considered to be a better place to raise children, right? And so the suburbs, quote unquote, have better schools. And it's a cycle that's gone on for generations, at least in the US. So yes, many of the charter operators will purposely go into the urban center to try to bring better options to lift up children who otherwise would be exactly as President Biden said, trapped by their zip code because their parents can't afford to move to the suburbs and they can't afford to send them to private school or parochial school. So there's really no option. You know, upper class parents have a choice because they have more in their bank account. They can either pick up and move to a district that has high test scores, good outcomes, good graduation rights, or they write the check to the private school. Low-income families don't have that. And that's why we believe that they should have a choice and they should have some control over. And, you know, it's really about breaking the cycle of poverty. Education is the way to do it. And, you know, we need a school system. Our traditional systems were built for standardization at a time when people went and worked on the factory line. Everything was standardized. So education was standardized. It was built around the agricultural calendar. You know, there was no school in the summer so that the kids could go work on the farm during the busy months (laughs) on the farm. It is time to modernize education in America and anywhere else that is using a 150-year-old system. Oh, I don't think it's just America. Look, I think some countries aren't 150 years old. They're still using the same system. But no, it's not just America. I mean, all of our school systems are quite antiquated, to be honest. And the funding as well is where one of the major problems is. And you look at in the UK, I don't think Australia or any of it's doing it any better at this stage. And they've all got to, I mean, make the changes. But what are the major roadblocks in creating more of these charter schools? If they're showing success, there's people willing to fund. What are these major roadblocks? The major roadblock is the teachers unions, charter schools. The teachers unions are really, really strong in the U.S. They're enormously well-funded. They are very politically sophisticated. And when you become a teacher and you go to work in a traditional school district, you join the union. They are a massive voting block. 
our campaign laws here are not super great either. They give a tremendous amount of money to political candidates. Um, and so unfortunately, some of the candidates who would be blue, right, Democrat, represent a lot of these poor areas and they take teachers union money for their political campaigns and they don't always do what's best for their constituents. Charter schools generally, uh, I would say 98% of them are not unionized. And because they do have to compete for students and they do have to get results in order to keep their charter and to keep going, they will turn over their staff if teachers are just dialing it in. Whereas in the district schools, the union protections make it very, very difficult to remove a teacher. Okay. So look, you and I, I'm employed by a private organization. I'm very accountable for what I do. So it's like being very accountable for the students' results in the charter schools. So whether they're not getting the results or they can turn them over, this is what you're saying? Yes, it is very, very difficult to dismiss or terminate a teacher in a traditional school district. There's a grievance process. It's very long. It's like a court case, right? So it takes a long, long time to remove a teacher. Uh, in New York City for years, they didn't even try they just created these centers where they would send teachers who were not performing in the classroom. They called them rubber rooms and <laughs> they would just, they would just go um, and, you know, sit and read a book or write a letter or talk on the phone once cell phones came along and collect their, their salary because it was so difficult to terminate a teacher who was not performing in the classroom. They just was easier to keep paying them, but to take them out of the classroom so that more children wouldn't be damaged. So yes, we had rubber rooms. Charter schools really don't put up with that nonsense. You generally work a longer day. You generally have more contact with the child's family. You generally, you know, have to be more accountable. And it's not for every teacher, but for teachers that really have a passion and really want to work hard and really want to make a difference in children's lives and are willing to get additional professional development to stay up to the cutting edge on all the pedagogy and the methodology. I think teaching in a charter school really fuels that passion for them. So, Teresa, during the last, I mean, we have had a strange, especially in education, 18 to 24 months, and let's hope it's kind of on the end of it now, like with COVID and schools closing. And I know that in the USA, schools have closed too. But were your charter schools, I know that, for example, if you're in a district school, it's the district makes a decision when you close, how they close, how they're doing home learning, what they're doing for home learning. Were the charter schools able to run their own race then, or did they have to go by what's happening within the district? Well, it depends. Some charter schools, use space in a district building. Okay. It's called co-locating. They might be in a district or sometimes it's called an in-district charter. And so if the district dictated that that building would close, then they would close. But many of them stayed open and got more creative and innovative in using common areas to spread students out for social distancing, but keep them coming to school. We know that the private schools, religious schools, and other private schools stayed open much, much more than the district schools. It seemed like the larger the urban area and the stronger the teachers union were, the longer the district schools stayed closed. Los Angeles and Chicago were two that just stayed closed and closed and closed and closed, whereas other schools were back in the swing of things and were not super spreaders. 
and the students were able to keep learning. So I really felt sorry for the kids in those big districts. But yes, they have pressure to perform because they have to keep going to keep their charter. I'll tell you about one. You probably, your listeners probably have heard of Dallas, Fort Worth. So the Fort Worth School District has a network of schools. They're called the Leadership Academy Network. It's a network of six independent autonomous schools that are run in partnership with Texas Wesleyan University, which is one of the older teaching colleges. And they just pulled out the stops for their kids. They delivered devices. Um, They discovered that they had multiple families living in the same households because the income level is very low. And they had grandparents frequently watching over the kids because parents, mom and dad were essential workers who had to leave the house, even in the height of the pandemic. And these grandmas said, you know, don't bring us a laptop. Don't bring us a tablet. We need paper packets. So they switched courses for families that couldn't handle the technology that needed paper packets. And they did that because they had a five-year charter to run these schools. And they had made a commitment to the district that by end of year five, which is 2024, all of their schools would be A-rated schools. And they were starting with kids who were maybe seventh grade reading at a third grade level and they just weren't going to fail. And it was, I've actually been doing a study on these schools and it's actually pretty amazing what the adults in that network did for those students. That's a community coming together, isn't it? That's being able to come together and pull and pull out all the stops. I've got a question for you. Look, if you're looking at charter schools and where you want it to go in the next 10 years, what would you like to see happen in the next 10 years for all the charter schools? I really would like public opinion to change. When you have two national teachers unions, the National Education Association, and oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the other one. I can't believe it. (laughs) The American Federation of Teachers, you know, and they're so well-funded by their membership dues. They've really been able to control the narrative around charter schools and independent schools. And, you know, I think that charter schools have gotten a really bad rap in the press, and I would really like people to open their mind to that there's children are individuals, families have individual needs. If this pandemic has taught us anything is that we need to be nimble and flexible and able to pivot to meet the needs of the moment. And I'd really like to see a breakdown between the rigid walls between district schools and charter schools and private schools. I think that different schools meet different needs for different families at different times. And I just think that in general, we need to keep pushing the narrative that it's time for personalized learning. Students with learning disabilities or autism are not going to fit into a one-size-fit-all cookie-cutter school. We need to diversify our models. We need to modernize the entire system. And I think we need to stop demonizing the various school models because children learn differently, teachers teach differently. I think we just need to modernize the entire system and realize that we need to have a lot more flexibility. Without losing it, without losing any accountability. (laughs) (laughs) I think you sound like you're talking about the UK system as well and the US US and Australia. So all the systems definitely need to change. And you're right. If anything's taught us in the last 18 months is that this system's antiquated. They need to change. Things can change overnight. Things can change really quickly. 
one thing I'd ask you is that have you ever looked at so with the charter schools I know that the big thing at the moment is all about sort of mental health and well-being of children and they're trying to figure out how can they put it on a map how can they standardize tests not test it but sort of say hey so one say for example this district is there's a lot of mental health issues while there's not as many in this district so they look at more funding in ways there so is there a way in the charter schools that you've looked at you know mental health and well-being after COVID and is there been more issues has there been more diagnoses of anything like that we have over here I don't know that we've gotten far enough out of this pandemic <laughs> that it's <laughs> that we've reached the bottom yet. I do know that for charter schools, particularly in urban areas where there is high poverty, there are a lot of wraparound services that are provided. I mentioned the Leadership Academy Network in Fort Worth. They open their doors at, I think, 645 in the morning and wow. go all the way and go all the way till 6 p.m and they serve dinner and they do it with less funding than the traditional district schools they have engaged yeah. with some local nonprofits who are child focused nonprofits who provide significant funding to them in the form of grants to provide those wraparound services and a lot of the charter schools do and i'm not saying that district schools do not but i am saying that in these high poverty urban areas a lot of charter schools really tap into the local philanthropy to provide the wraparound services to get students after school tutoring and even providing meals for younger siblings that may not be in the school just yet but have nutritional needs so they really do focus on the whole child Teresa, this is a, such a wonderful to talk to you today and to hear about all the charter schools and actually just about how the system's changing because it's not nice how the system needs to change, I should say, rather than is changing. It is changing, but it always feels a little bit slower than we want, doesn't it? Um, I was just wondering, how can our listeners, you know, read more, hear more about the innovative schools, the policy changes, or even get involved? I would love it if they would visit our website. There's a guide that I wrote to innovation schools there. Um, our founder, David Osborne, wrote a wonderful book called Reinventing America's Schools. He looks closely at several school systems, including Denver and Indianapolis, that have attempted to remake themselves and modernize. And I think what's interesting is that they will read about the joy that teachers find in teaching in these more modernized kind of new systems. So it's called Reinventing America's Schools. And again, his name is David Osborne. Our project is named after that book, Reinventing America's Schools. You can find us on the Progressive Policy website and on the tab called Reinventing America's Schools. There's lots to read and lots of information there. And we'd be thrilled to hear from you. All of our contact information is there as well. Tressa, thank you so much. It's great to hear about the three pillars, the autonomy, the accountability, and the diversity in the schools, and that it's a non-selective and it is open to everyone. It's, you know, you are building the future generation, so we need to do it correct. We need to do it right. We want someone that's going to lead our countries in the right way. They're going to look at things in the right way as well. I mean, it's just, I, I would say that our current system doesn't look like it's probably doing that So in, within the UK and other countries. So I'm hoping, we are all hoping that with, you know, amazing programs and schools that are, you know, reinventing our school system and let's hope all our schools, 23, 2040, 2050, our children are prepared for what we're going to give them. 
So thank you very much for being with us today, Tressa. It is my life's work to advocate for that. Thank you for having me. There are so many exciting developments happening right now in education. EDX Education would love to hear from you, so do get in touch or subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn, and so many more. This podcast series is brought to you by Heather Welch from EDX Education, as she'd like to say, let's create lifelong learners. 